that you take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Good morning. Would you please bow your head with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness. To your praise and honor, through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. So as you live your life, you realize there are some things that just naturally go together. Peas and carrots, washer and dryer, sun and moon, and of course our topic today, prayer and fasting. Now there could be no better day throughout the entire calendar year than today, New Year's Eve, a time of reflection on the previous year and the anticipation of starting new things with the coming of New Year's Day tomorrow, thinking of the things we can always improve, than to talk today about the discipline of prayer and fasting. Now, this coming Saturday, Friday and Saturday, we will have the opportunity through our church-wide event of prayer and fasting, culminating in the celebration together at the Knott's House. So while the majority of people throughout the world will be focusing their attention on things of the world today in celebration, I want us to focus today on the things of God in preparation for this Friday and Saturday. Now, 19th century pastor Robert Murray McShane famously said, Do you wish to humble a man? Let me say that again. Do you wish to humble a man? Then ask him about his prayer life. So true that is. So it's our time right now for a little self-introspection. Let me ask you directly, what is your prayer life like? What is your prayer life like? And frankly, are you satisfied with it? Now, how often do you practice the discipline of prayer and fasting together? Do you make this a normal practice throughout the year? Now, we see throughout both the Old and New Testament examples of believers practicing fair and pra- uh, excuse me, practicing f- prayer and fasting together. That's hard to get out. <laughs> We see it in Nehemiah 9. The Israelites fasted and lifted prayers of praise. Psalm 35. David mentions prayer and fasting for his enemies. Psalm 35, or Daniel 9. Daniel fasts and prays, asking God to have mercy on his chosen people. Luke 2. The prophetess Anna fasted and prayed regularly for Israel. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas pray and fast to ask for guidance in the appointing of elders. 
Now we see it in the example of Christ's life in Matthew 4, when Christ was facing the first big test in his ministry, when he's to be tempted by the devil. Scripture says that he fasted. In Matthew 26, now when Jesus was facing the largest test of his life, his crucifixion, the scriptures say that he spent the night in prayer. So in his ministry, Christ demonstrates to us his practical theology by his example. But for our benefit, through scripture, he reinforces what he demonstrates when he teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount about prayer and fasting. So would you please take your copy of God's word and turn to Matthew 6. And we'll, I'll follow along as I read um, verses 5 through 18. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask him. Pray like this then. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive you. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Now, friends, today our, our subject is prayer and fasting. But in transparency, we are going to spend the majority of our time on the topic of prayer. And then I'll give some commentary on fasting at the end. Now, understand this, please. First and foremost, this is not an exhaustive sermon on this topic. We will barely scratch the surface, and frankly, the number of resources available on prayer and fasting is staggering. My hope, though, today is that in this limited scope of a gigantic topic, there's something that you can glean and walk away with today. I'll have three points. Point one will be, how should we pray? How should we pray? The do's and don'ts of prayer. Point two will be the power of prayer, the power of prayer. And then finally, the principle of biblical fasting. Now, in God's economy, for whatever reason, God has chosen our prayers as a means to move himself. And in that economy, first and foremost, we need to understand that we are commanded in Scripture to pray. Back at Matthew 6, 5. Christ says, and when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray. Now, it's the natural conclusion 
that you, you will pray if you are in a relationship with Christ. Because God made us and redeemed us for fellowship with himself. And prayer is an important and integral part of that relationship. We also see the call to prayer in other parts of scripture. Psalm 50, and call upon me in the day of trouble. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Luke 11.9, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. And Luke 6.28, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Now, of course, that's not an exhaustive list, but it really does set our minds that, yes, indeed, we are called to prayer. Now, knowing the importance of prayer, the writers, the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism and then Hercules Collins, when he wrote the Orthodox Catechism, found prayer so important that they wrote a whole section on it. And question 135 in the Orthodox Catechism says this, why do Christians need to pray? And the answer is because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness that God requires of us. And also because God gives his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who pray continually and groan inwardly, asking God for these gifts and thanking him for them. Again, did you hear those lines? Prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. And we are to pray continually. Now, if we're commanded in scripture to pray, then the next logical question is, how should we pray? How should we pray? We're going to take a look at the do's and don'ts of prayer. So back to the scripture that Raymond was so kind to read, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Again, friends, did you hear that? Pray without ceasing. Now, the Greek root word that ceasing is translated from means more literally, permanently, continually, uninterruptedly. So how should we pray? Permanently, continually, uninterruptedly. Now, I would say here the idea is that communion with the Lord through prayer should be on the forefront of our minds, and we should exercise that without delay. Now, how often in life, when learning something new, usually for our safety, are we told what we shouldn't do before we're taught what we should do? For any of you that ever served in the military, safety briefing, need I say more? We do it when learning to drive a car, learning to shoot a firearm. And for those raising teenagers, I bet you wish you had a list of don'ts before you start raising them. Now, we see in this text on prayer and fasting that we read Matthew 6, 5 through 18. Before Jesus gives us instruction on prayer, he, also, he actually starts out by saying how not to pray, what we shouldn't do. And I would say maybe even for our safety. Matthew 6, 5 starts with, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrite, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they, may, that they may be seen by others. So the hypocrite loves to be seen by others. Why is that? Why does Christ point that out? 
Well, it's because they're praying for men to see, not to honor God. Jesus calls them out because when we pray, we shouldn't be making statements for others to hear under the guise of talking to God. Our prayer should not be a disguise for gossip, a mini lecture, or a personal announcement. We should never make statements more for those around us to hear than for God. I'm sure if you think back in any prayer meeting that you've ever been in, I'm sure you could come up with your own example where you saw that. Now, why is that? It's because that's hypocrisy. When we pretend to be talking to God, when in actuality we're making announcements for men to hear, this applies when you're leading others in public prayer as well. On the forefront of our mind, we need to remember we are talking to the sovereign God. Christ continues into verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. So Christ, by directing us to go into our room, he's saying of the hypocrisy in verse 5, don't do that. Don't be a hypocrite. When When he's speaking of going into our room, it's more literally our secret chamber. I would say he's alluding to the secret chamber of our heart. When we go there to pray, he's making an emphasis on solitude, where we're not displaying our prayers to others for self-aggrandizement. Let our prayers be prayers to God alone, not statements to others about ourselves. He continues in 7 and 8, And when you pray, do not heap empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard in their many words. Do not be like them. Do not be like them. Now, although it's translated empty phrases, if you go back to the Greek, I love this, it's more literally prattle on tediously or to talk with little purpose. Now, the connection to the Gentiles is that historians tell us that in other religions in Jesus' day, they used long magical incantations in their prayers. These were nonsense words much like abracadabra or hocus pocus. But interestingly, we also see this kind of thoughtless repetition when we see our friends, the Roman Catholics, praying the rosary using our fathers or Hail Marys. So why do some some pray this way? Because Jesus says they think that they will be heard because of their many words. So friends, my charge to you is don't prattle on in your prayers. You don't need a lot of empty, repetitious, tedious words to get God's attention. Now that covers how we should pray. And then Christ shifts gears on us in verses 9 through 13, and as he transitions on what not to do, then he says, pray like this then, in verse 9. Pray like this then. And he provides us a pattern on how we should pray. Now, the prayer Christ instructs us on is composed of six petitions. The first three in verses 9 and 10 are concerned with the glory of God. We read, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. So our first order in prayer should be praise and glory to God. And then in verse 11 through 13, these petitions, these petitions are concerned with ourselves and our needs, providing us our daily bread, 
forgive us our debts, and lead us not into temptation. So our second order in prayer should be humble requests for our needs. These are sometimes called supplication, which just is a fancy word for asking. So, again, I ask you, how should we pray? I would say continually, with our prayers first glorifying God, and then with humble supplication. Now, although that covers the bare essentials of basic prayer construction, I'd like to add an outline for prayer that gives us a little more organization to our prayers. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. It's the acrostic ACTS, A-C-T-S. Everyone heard of that? Anyone? Okay, excellent. Good, some of you. It stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Now, When we look at the Lord's Prayer, I contend that we can see all four of these elements. Adoration is clearly implied in the petition, hallowed be your name. We certainly see confession in the petition, forgive us our debts. And there is supplication by the request to deliver us from evil, and also your will be done. Now, although we don't see any overt expression of thanksgiving, I think it's implied in the petition, give us this day our daily bread. Now the connection is that God provides our daily sustenance. And with that realization, it should move us to have an attitude of thanksgiving to the Lord, knowing that he is our provision. Now in your mind's eye, if you're thinking, man, Chuck, that's weak. I would say, well, Paul, fortunately, affirms this in Philippians 4.6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So this acrostic acts allows us to categorize our prayer. So let's quickly look at each element. Excuse me. All right, so our first element of prayer should be adoration or praise or glorifying God. Fill in the term there. Just like in Matthew 6.10, Jesus starts with, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Friends, God is worthy of our praise simply because he is God. And the Psalms are full of great examples of godly prayers that are heavily weighted on the side of adoration. I'd encourage you, read them. Pray them back to God and learn to delight in this particular element of prayer. In my personal opinion, this is where you should spend your most time, glorifying God. And then confession. Prayer obviously should include confession. And yes, indeed, God does know our sins. But by confessing to him, we are acknowledging that our sin is offensive to him. And we're agreeing with him that indeed we need his son, Jesus Christ, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We see this in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The next element of thanksgiving, we'll jump back to 1 Thess 5.16-18. Again, it says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of Christ Jesus for you. 
So verse 18 commands us to be thankful in all circumstances. Now, of course, it's easy for the good things in our lives. But this also includes the difficulties that we face day to day. It also includes the refining work that God might be doing in our soul. Any trials he's putting us through, where he's molding us into his image. Sometimes we're difficult and it's hard to mold that clay. So we should give him thanks for that as well. And then finally, supplication. Prayer rightly includes supplication and petitions for our needs and the needs of others. Supplication means humbly bringing our requests before God. We present our petitions both for ourselves and on the behalf of others. Now, importantly, supplication requires aligning our will with his will. Philippians 4.6 again says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And 1 John 5.14, And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, one quick thought on supplication. Tragically, if you're like I am, many of our prayers consist mainly of supplication. We ask the Lord for the things we desire, forgetting the important things of adoring him, thanking him, and confessing our sins to him. It's right and good to ask for things from our creator, but friends, remember this. God is not a cosmic vending machine. Where we come before him with our desires, plug in the correct prayer formula, and God enriches us with our deepest material desires. Take care that your prayer life does not become unbalanced. Don't spend an inordinate amount of time asking for things while not spending enough time adoring him, thanking him, and confessing sins to him. So, friends, how should we pray? Continually, with adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Now, as we pray, and if you are a praying person, you will realize that prayer has power. Prayer has power. James 5.16 says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We read throughout the Bible that by prayer, by the power of prayer, people were delivered from peril, healed from diseases, saw loved ones cured, and witnessed innumerable miracles as a result of fervent prayer. Abraham, who prayed for and received a son at the age of 100. Moses, who prayed and received help at the Red Sea. David, who escaped the treachery of Saul by prayer. Solomon, who received great wisdom as a result of prayer. And Daniel, who was only able to interpret dreams after he prayed. So friends, James 5.16, if anything, is understating the case that the effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. And we see this throughout history because in the world, the reality is that non-Christians fear the prayer of a righteous person. John Knox 
the 16th century Scottish reformer, had such a strong ministry of prayer that the Roman Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, declared, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies in Europe. That's power right there. And friends, governments still fear the prayer of the saints to this day. China, Venezuela, North Korea. If you read anything about those countries, saints who are praying are often arrested. Even here in the West, this year, the Biden administration put forth new guidelines for prayer in public schools, seeking to restrict the students, seeking to restrict students from praying on their free time on school grounds. Why would they do that if they didn't fear the power of prayer? Why would townships in Britain ban prayer from within 150 feet of, an abortion, of abortion clinics if they don't fear the power of prayer? So why do people and governments fear a praying person? Because the prayers of the saints are effectual. Again, 1 John 5.14. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. We see the power of prayer in the conversion of others. When my family and I met Danny, he was not a believer. We were introduced to him through a mutual friend. And Danny's whole identity was caught up in a single event that happened to him when he was eight years old. Him and his mother were kidnapped, imprisoned, and tortured for a year, and then rescued by the FBI. Frankly, quite an amazing story, but he struggled with, there could not exist a good God. Those were most of my conversations with him. But there were many people praying for Danny, and over the course of the years, we started to see a change. And about a year later, he received Christ as his Lord and Savior. And there are two things out of this story that stands out, that stands out to me that I hope we can hear today. And the first one is, yes, indeed, God foreordained Danny before the foundation of the world. We know that. Scripture tells us that. But yes, indeed, God used the prayers of the saints to move Danny to believe. How does this work in transparency? We don't know. We don't know. This is where I fall back on Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to God, but we have what is revealed. And sometimes we've got to operate that way in our prayer. But friends, remember, the prayer of a righteous per- person has great power as it is working. Our, our final point here, the principle of fasting. Now, the example of Christ and others in Scripture show that there is a, an organic connection between prayer and fasting. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that Christ teaches us about prayer and then fasting in sequential order when he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. And in almost every scriptural account of fasting within Scripture, within the Bible. It is linked with prayer. And I would say you can pray without fasting, but you cannot fast biblically without praying. Now, why fasting 
interestingly, is nowhere commanded in Scripture, it is assumed. Assume that God's people would follow the example and teaching of our Lord Jesus. Again, back to Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Just like in Matthew 6.5, in Matthew 6.16, Christ doesn't say if we fast, but when, when you fast. It's assumed that the followers of Christ will fast. However, Jesus also makes a point to shut down any legalistic or religious formality to fasting, telling us not to fast in such a way that it draws attention to ourselves. Jesus commands us that if we do fast, we need to pull ourselves together before we go out in public. Only God needs to know that we're fasting. And when we are fasting, it should remind us to be grateful for God, for his providence, and his provision. We should recognize fasting as a habit of grace, a gift from God, which he has given us to have a greater heightened awareness for the things of God. The idea being when you feel the hunger pangs, it turns you to the Lord. Now keep in mind, when we do fast and pray together, it places no obligation upon the sovereign God to respond how we want him to. Now, I would say he does take special delight when we show our helplessness in fasting, and I think he will respond by giving us a greater knowledge and sense of himself and a greater sense of dependency on his grace. John Piper writes in his book, A Hunger for God, Fasting is not first offered to God that we might be paid back because of it. It is first given by God that we might benefit from it and that he might be glorified through it. Let me read that again. Fasting is not first offered to God that we might be paid back because of it. It is first given by God that we might benefit from it and that he might be glorified through it. I'm going to give us a point of application here. For those of you taking notes, it's long. Practice. That's my charge to you today. Practice. Make practicing prayer a routine in your daily life and the practice of fasting something you incorporate regularly in conjunction conjunction with your prayer. We have the opportunity coming this Friday, starting at sundown, to do this very thing to practice. And I would encourage everyone here, if you can, let's take advantage of this opportunity as a corporate body. Hear the words of J.C. Ryle in his book, A Call to Prayer. This only I say, that it is essential to your soul's health to make praying a part of the business of every 24 hours in your life. Just as you allot time to eating, sleeping, and business, so also a lot time to prayer. Choose your own hours and seasons. At the very least, speak with God in the morning before you speak with the world, and speak with God at night after you have done business with the world. 
but settle it in your minds that prayer is the one great things of every day. Do not drive it into a corner. Do not give it the scraps and parings of your duty. Whatever else you do, make business of prayer. Make it the business of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning studying your word. Please cause this to weigh on our hearts. Transform our minds. Allow us and encourage us to apply it to our lives. Let nothing fall to the ground, Lord. It's in your sovereign holy name we pray these things. Amen.